Greetings, I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, the 69th edition of the FCCMA Podcast. If you listen to this, you know this is a service provided by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. Each episode we listen to and we interview a city leader or a county leader who's going to share insights into their philosophies of working in their current job, whether it's a county administrator, uh, city administrator, deputy assistant, or whatever. Uh, today we have with us Thomas Harmer. He's the we're not saying city manager because the charter says town manager. So we have the town manager of Longbow Key. Thomas, what's the difference between a town manager and a city manager? Uh, well, Steve, thanks for having me. That's a good question. I get that question a lot. And there is Do some, you really get it a lot? There, 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 yes, because I think there's some differences. There's a lot of us who only work for cities, and there's some managers that only work for counties, and there's a few of us that have crossed over and have both experiences. And so in Florida, it, there is differences. There's the constitutional officers. That's the biggest difference. And so you work for the county, the board of county commissioners, typically, if you're the county administrator. You're appointed by the commission. Right. And you run the day-to-day -day like you would in a city, but there are elements that are handled by others. The sheriff, for instance. The right. sheriff is elected separately, so you don't have a police department. Best job, because the county has to raise the taxes to pay for the sheriff. Yes. Nobody's going to ever say no to the sheriff. He doesn't have to worry about getting mad at, getting people mad at him. He just has to run around with, with the cars. And he has the unique ability to appeal his budget to the governor. Isn't that great? Yes. So it is an extra power, if you will, for the sheriffs in the, in the state. Uh, and then you have the supervisor of elections, the property appraiser, the tax collector, and these other functions that are constitutional officers that... Uh, are elected separately from the Board of County Commissioners, right. but they approve their budgets. So it's kind of an unusual relationship. There's also a clerk of the court, and, the, and they serve as kind of like the finance department for the county, but they, again, the, the clerk of the court is separately elected and, right. and serves in that financial role. So you don't have the pure finance department and audit functions that you see in a city if you work for the county. They're handled by a separate constitutional officer. Right, and when you were in a county, if you have a billion dollar budget, you really only get about 150 million of that. Because by the time you give it out to the clerk, the sheriff, the supervisor of elections, the uh, property appraiser, uh, tax collector, all those uh, other entities which they control their own budgets of sorts, you have very little left over for roads, parks, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and the clerk processes actually your, your uh, payables and, and does the audit of the county's functions. So right. uh, they have some oversight role of the county government, even though they're separately elected. It's kind of part of the check and balances that were set up in the statutes. And Longbow Key is relatively unique the largest city that crosses into, you're in Sarasota and Manatee County. How does that function? How does that work on a day-to-day -day basis? There's a couple of challenges, I think, uh, being in two different counties. I would classify one of them as financial cost to the residents because the two counties have two separate tax rates, millage rates. And in our case, Manatee County's millage rate's a little bit higher than Sarasota County. So if you had two properties assessed the same, the Manatee County tax bill would be higher because their tax rate is the same. And it gets really complicated because each government has its own way that it funds things besides just millage. But the residents pay more taxes in the Manatee County side because their millage rate is higher. And they technically live, they live in Longboat Key, but they live in Manatee County. Yes, so it's the, they fall within the town, and the town is a, what I would call a full-service municipality. We provide all the general services of government. We have our own police, our own fire. It provides that service both 
sides of the island, Sarasota County side and Manatee County side. Same thing with planning and building inspections and all the other functions that you would have in a city. We really don't have a county presence on the island, but our residents pay county taxes and city taxes. That's you know how it works yeah, in Florida. Yeah. How did this come about? Uh, so in 1921, Sarasota County was created out of Manatee County. And that line was drawn down University, and it came across Sarasota Bay, and it split Longboat Key uh, into the two counties. It was a straight line that was and drawn. was the city already incorporated in 1921? No, we uh, did not incorporate until 1955. But, okay, so the island, it's an island city, so it made sense from a city perspective to put everybody in one yeah. city. You couldn't change the county. Has anybody ever introduced legislation to try to change that? Uh, yes, we've had extensive conversations with both counties and the state legislature. The local delegation of state legislators have said that they would support the legislation if both counties would agree. But we're a, um, a high net worth, high tax base island, and our residents pay significant taxes to both counties. And so neither county really wants to give that up. You know, I'll give you an example. We pay about $14 million a year to each county in tax rates. Our residents pay, not the town government. Yeah, so for the mere convenience of the residents of Manatee County, I'm not giving up that 14 Yeah, million. so it would be hard to do that. And they may have factored in some of their bonding, their borrowing, sure. um, to, uh, and that revenue, and so it gets uh, fairly complicated. Our legislators, it requires an act of the state legislature, mm -hmm. uh, and they have said, the individual legislators have said that if the two counties would come to an agreement, they would clearly support that. But that's a very difficult ask. And understandable. I mean, yes. I could see if I'm Manatee County, you're saying, well, we've already provided this bridge, we've already been, you know, da, 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 and we're not giving up the $14 million. And you're right, if you've bonded off of that projected revenue, then it's a 10-year event horizon before you can really make a change. Yeah, and I would say that that's the first issue. The second issue is dealing with the multiple constitutional officers. So you have the clerk of the courts, the supervisor of elections, the property appraiser, uh, the tax collector. So we deal with two of them. When there's an election on the island, we oh deal my with gosh. two different supervisor of elections, for example. So, but don't, you can outsource this, your city election to just one of them, can't you? No, well, th there's ways that you can try and create interlocal agreements, but uh, we typically end up having to deal with the two of them, just like property appraisers. We have the county, Sarasota County side does their own assessments each year to determine value increases, and the Mantee County side does the same thing. And their methodology is generally the same, but we can get different um, appraisals. Uh, two years ago, we had a, a, a minus 3% change in our value in the Sarasota County side, but the Mantee County side said we increased 3%. So our average was almost zero, or approximately, um, but you had two different determinations of value. So we deal with all of those constitutional officers uh, in both counties. So it's a little bit of duplication that just is, we, we've almost become used to it, but it's not that efficient. Yeah, especially when it comes to elections, yes. I would imagine if you have to have the election for a city council administered by two different entities, uh, that could get crazy. Very, very interesting. Um, you, we, we talk a lot on this show about the career paths of folks. I don't think we've ever had anybody who was a Marine Corps interrogator. But then you parlayed that, and that was your first government job, into 911 dispatch. Uh, let's explore this for a little bit because to be in a Marine Corps, in, in, I, easy for me to say, <laughs> to be a Marine Corps interrogator took a special bit of training. Tell us a little bit about that training. So uh, right out of high school, I went into the Marine Corps. 
after basic training, ultimately, I went through interrogation school. Um, Marines back then were trained by the Army to be interrogators, so I was trained out at Fort Huachuca at the criminal, I'm sorry, at the uh, intelligence center out at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. And they had a lot of things they emphasized, but as a young Marine, the, the biggest thing I remember to this day was the importance of listening. And, and, and I recall, you know, in the evenings we had homework to go home and just listen to the news, like the six o'clock news, and we had to listen and look and observe why we were taking notes for that half hour or an hour period of time. And then we had to write a report on everything we heard and observed. And so it really kind of re-emphasized to me the importance of taking the time to listen to the words and, and observe the person that you're talking to um, before you make any judgments. And, and so then 911 dispatch, I can't think of a better transitional job uh, because 911. Yes, and so, so when I left, that was my first local government job was as a 911 dispatcher for a police department uh, in Broward County, one of the municipalities in Which South one? Florida, the town of Davie. Okay. Uh, and so I was a 911 dispatcher there. And I remember the first week there and the orientation and the training and them saying what I heard in interrogation school was, one of the most important things you need to do is listen. So when you answer that call and say 911, what's the nature of your emergency? Listen very carefully to understand what the emergency is and, and what help they may need so you can determine what resources to send. And so as another reinforcement, especially as a person very young in their career, to think about taking that time and how important that time is to to listen and observe before you act. And to listen, I, I, I suppose you're going to say to listen more than just the words, the tone, the level of tension in the voice, any background noises, that might be a clue. So you really got to listen really carefully to hear what's going on. Yes, I think in listening and observing to me are kind of tied together. Mm -hmm. The whole body language, the eye, eye contact, uh, how, how the person is emphasizing the, the, the level of the voice. You know, when I first started uh, doing texts and someone would text me with all capitals, you know, I would take it as they were screaming at me just sure. from, from my experience and trying to understand that. And when I've talked to an employee before, is, are you mad? Why are you why, yelling at what me? What are you talking about? Well, you're doing everything in all caps. Oh, well, I don't know how to do the, the cap lock must have been on. I don't know how to. Right, right. So, so, so yes. Yeah, so I, I think you have to think about all of that. The, um, uh, so you, you translated that. By the way, what's interesting about the 911, I learned this interviewing with Reese Goad, the city of Tallahassee. They're changing their 911 to be, you know, back probably when you were doing it, there was really two choices, right? Police or fire, right? Now we're recognizing that so many 911 calls are distress calls that do not involve a crime and don't necessarily need a law enforcement or somebody to put out a fire or an EMT, but that it might be a mental health call, you yes. know, call for help. And so training the 911 dispatchers to understand the difference so that maybe we can send a cop and a behavioral specialist to come along as well, because it may not be a situation where someone's broken the law and need to be arrested, but, or stopped from harming themselves, but that they need mental health support, not necessarily law enforcement. No, and, and you're bringing flashbacks because part of my career in, in a former life, I oversaw the fire 911 dispatch for the city of Tallahassee. And as, as my role was the deputy fire chief of operations for the city of Tallahassee. When was that? 
It was uh, back in 91 to 1994. Just for the record, okay. folks, he doesn't look like he was at the professional age in 1991. And we're just going to, we have to go on the record with those things that are important <laughs> for the listeners. <laughs> uh, well, I started in the Marine Corps, uh, or I started my 911 position in 1990, I'm sorry, 1978, and in the Marine Corps in 1975. So it's been, uh, you know, 40, four, 45 plus years. Uh, so I've had the pleasure of experiencing a few careers uh, that led to where I'm at today. Um, but I was just going to mention on the dispatch thing, yeah. we dealt with non-fire calls back then. You know, we, we dealt with cats in the tree or, or snakes in the fireplace. They weren't the mental health issues, but, but you have to be able to figure out the right resources and send them. And it's not always a fire truck or, or a police vehicle, as you mentioned. Yeah, very interesting. And so uh, then, then you let's fast forward to the new city manager of the, or town manager, I stand corrected, of the town of Longboat Key, and you use that Marine Corps interrogation training to get, to get your job underway. Tell us that story because it's really cool. So, so when I started there, one of the first things that I wanted to do was meet with residents and employees uh, I was going to normally go through the orientation with the employees and the department heads, but I wanted to really spend some time meeting with the residents. And so working with uh, my staff, which is, there's just two of us, there's an assistant to the town manager and the town manager, uh, we set up appointments to meet with at least 100 people in the first 100 days. And that kind of grew because we added some groups in as well, and in addition to the individual meetings, and I think I end up with almost 1,000 individual contacts in my first 100 days. And they were listening sessions. They were designed to be that, and it was really, really helpful and kind of set the How stage. How did you get the people? Was it staff as well as public public citizens, uh, leaders was, in the community? It, it was not staff. Uh, I had separate meetings there. In addition to your 1,000 yes. in 100 days, that's yes. 10 meetings a day for those of you who are not mathematicians, uh, about a year. So you're listening to that many people every day. And there was... Um, help from the assistant to the town manager who's been with this town for over 20 years. And so she developed a list of uh, active people in the community, uh, leaders, business owners, uh, groups and association mm -hmm. leaders, uh, condominium association leaders, and others that have been before the town commission. And she just developed that list and started setting it up. You know, I just asked her to um, work with me. Pack my meetings. And she really helped me orientate into the community because she lived in the town, which is a little bit unusual because most of the employees don't live on Lombo Key because of the cost of living, but she had been there 20-some years and lived on the island, and so she was a huge help in identifying that list and then scheduling them to come in, and, and I met most of them in my office. They'd come in, it be, might be 20 minutes, it might be 30 minutes, um, but I had two or three basic questions I asked them, and then they talked to me, and, and, and all of that kind of developed into some themes for me of things that I needed to think about and be aware of. So what did you learn? Well, I would say the number one thing and the burden they placed on me was, don't you dare mess up Longboat Key. We like it the way it is. Keep Longboat Key, Longboat Key. That was clearly the common theme. Is that because it's just so quaint and cool to live there? They just feel like no change? Well, yes, and, and some of that, as you dig deeper, some of it was the aesthetics, some of it was the community feel, some of it was things that were decisions made years ago like in the mid-80s, they froze the density. So that town 
Uh, Longboat Key isn't going to be a large community with 20 or 30,000 residents. It's had about 7,000 residents for the last 10 or 15 or 20 years because it's built out. They froze the level of density on the island and make it extremely difficult to add any more people. Was there anything you learned that was unexpected? Um, well, I was pleased that as you dig, dig deeper into their comments, uh, they were very, very uh, high on the customer service they received from the residents. And that was something else when they said, don't change anything, and, and you talk about that, they're like, I like it when I walk into town hall. Everyone seems to smile. They seem to like what they're doing. They're very helpful. They don't pass me off. You don't have voicemail. When we call here, we always talk to an individual. And so it really kind of highlighted how important that customer service uh, level personal was. personal touch, yeah. That's really interesting. And so after about the 50th meeting, it started to get redundant? I, I think it did, but it was so enjoyable to meet. There's so many interesting residents in your community, no matter what community you manage. Um, but out there, we have we're, the average age is 71 years old. Most of the residents are retired. Uh, most of the residents are, um, were very successful, fluent. And when you meet with them and learn a little bit about their background and you find out that they were a C-level suite officer in a, a Fortune 50 company or a Fortune 100 company or, or they sold a business for a couple billion dollars and moved out onto the island and, and you really meet such an interesting group of individuals that are very, very smart and very successful. Um, and they seemed generally pleased with the town. They were excited that they lived on Longboat Key and they didn't want someone to come that in and mess it up. That explains the town seal says Longboat Key status quo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. And so uh, in all of your listening, you've developed um, 30-something principles? Yes. Uh, we're not going to go through all 30 today, yeah. folks. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about your top four principles because I, I, when you started talking about them, I really, I really enjoy listening to that. And, and you use this to govern how you manage your business. Yeah, and so there are, I have 35 principles that I've developed over time just by being mentored or observing uh, positive mentorship and sometimes maybe negative mentorship and identifying things that they originally were my principles that I would try and use to guide me. But over time, uh, I've shared those with the uh, management team uh, and, and said, hey, these are things we probably all should be doing and thinking about. And the, the top four, uh, we call them the boat principle. So if you think about Longboat Key and we're an island, it, it kind of helps and relates there. But the first one is B, which is be responsive. And it goes back to what I heard during the listening sessions is we really need to be responsive to the residents. Um, but, but I also carry it to say, but it's just as important to be responsive to the employees, each other. So that if, you, if the police department needs help from the fire department, we need to be responsive to each other. But we also always need to be responsive to the public we serve and the commissioners who provide us the guidance and support us with the budget. Yeah, when you're a small community with a small staff, you don't have the luxury of delegation through layers upon layers. So B is, is the first one. The second one. Yeah, offer solutions. And so, you know, we often hear it's not my job or no, we can't do that. And so what I always try to encourage is before we get to that point, we should find out, well, what are you really trying to accomplish? So if someone comes to you and says, you need to do this, well, maybe the immediate answer is you can't do that. We have a law, we have an ordinance, we have a rule. And I always try to myself step back and say, well, instead of talking about that right now, try and help me understand what, uh, what are you trying to accomplish? And, and then maybe there's another way to get there. Right. 
uh, and we can kind of work around that. Maybe what you're asking for isn't the right thing, but, but unless I sit down with you and think about how I can help you, um, I try not to go straight to no. Yeah, find a getaway to yes, right? Yes. Which is, okay, that, that wouldn't, the way you're suggesting it may not work, but I, we need to find a way to get there, which is ironic because that really is the sister of be responsive, right? Which yes. is come in with solutions. It's the old, your staff person comes in and says, hey, this is broken. Right. Well, don't come into me mm -hmm. until the, the conversation is, this is broken, and here's what we're going to do to fix it. Yes. Uh, or here's some suggestions on what we can do to fix it. You know, are we okay? A, you need to know this was broken. B, are you okay with this solution yeah. to fix and, it? And that's how it applies well to the staff. So, you know, think about it and come to a solution approach before you um, get too far just saying, I don't know what to do. Here's my emergency. So it applies both ways. So I'm really intuitive. Longboat key, B-O. I'm just going to stab in the dark. I'm closing my eyes. The next letter is A. A. Actively communicate. Okay. Uh, and, and I always say that uh, I don't think email is the, uh, the best tool to communicate, especially if you're a manager and everyone likes to copy you on emails. So if you get 100 emails a day and, so, and somewhere buried in there is an email asking you a really important question, um, but I think actively communicate relates to a number of different things. It, it relates to us being responsive. So if, if someone asks me a question, I have this internal clock to say, I want to be able to acknowledge receipt within 24 hours. I want to be able to respond within five days, sooner if I can. And if I can't, then within that five-day period, I'll let them know a reasonable time for me to get back to them. So when you say active response, is that the difference between you know, it, it, each medium has its advantages and disadvantages. Texting is very fast, right? Mm -hmm. But it can be very impersonal and very light. It's hard to keep track. Email is this natural tendency for downwardness. What I mean by the negativity, if somebody says something, it's especially with a constituent, it can get ugly fast. Social media, forget about it. But is, are, you, are you saying as a principal, pick up the phone, have a meeting, interact, intergate, actively engage with the constituent? Yes, I think actively communicate is the principle that uh, if you can, do it in person. If you can't, there's always a phone, but a text or an email are really should be more of a last resort if you really need help or you need a response because it's, it's more impersonal. And I still like the idea of talking to people face to face. Maybe that goes back to my interrogation days. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think that's more sincere. You can understand the importance of it better. You can kind of help understand and read what they're trying to accomplish better. And so I, I talk about stop me in the parking lot, in the hallway, make sure you come by and see me. I, and I have lots of stories, but uh, in my previous life as a manager on the east coast of Florida, there was a, um, a, a direct department head that came to me and said, I'm really upset at the finance director. He refuses to respond to me. He completely ignores me. And this went on for like two or three days. And it's like, well, your office is really right down the hall. Have you tried talking to him? Well, I haven't. I've been emailing him. And, well, did you know that he had a family emergency and he's been out the past seven days dealing with that? Well, no, I didn't know that. I just keep sending emails and he won't respond to me. And, and so, that, again, that was one of the things. When I heard that and saw that, it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's a classic example of, you know, as I tell my staff, my team all the time, if this medium isn't working or it's starting to get negative, change the medium. Because the medium sometimes in and of itself can, can change the tone of a conversation. And there's a great example, right? Had you walked down, 
Hey, Joe, you got a second? Can I talk to you? Oh, Joe's out. Hey, Sally, where's Joe? Mm -hmm. Oh, Joe's uh, mom is real sick. She's in the hospital. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to send him a nice note. Hey, Joe, thinking about you, buddy. Hope things are going okay. You're in my thoughts and prayers. Or whatever that is, suddenly everything's changed. You're not yes. adversarial with Joe. Suddenly you're on the same team as Joe. And when Joe gets back, hey, man, I'm sorry I couldn't get to your emails, as opposed to, hey, asshole, when are you going to respond <laughs> to my emails, right? Because uh, it has a natural way yeah, of doing right, it. Right. Um, I, I, I frankly just had this happen the other day. The, the email chain got, got started getting nasty. I picked up the phone. I said, how are you doing? Da, 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 da. And then, boom, the bubble bursts, and we were able to get, break through mm -hmm. it and start communicating. All right, my second guest, T. T for team. So think team is the, uh, is the principle. And just while I'm here at the conference, uh, I think that issue came up. Uh, there was a, a con complaint or a concern raised by a resident about a, a boat blocking a canal and wanting to have the, the town come out and look at it because they thought the boat was too big to be parked in the canal and it was blocking navigation. And so I contacted the police department and said, Let's go out and check the conditions. They had a similar complaint, same boat, months ago, back in January, and determined it wasn't violating any codes, and it was still, the area was still uh, navigable, so you could get other boats around it, so there wasn't any violation, but they looked into it. This was a new complaint, different person, same canal, probably same boat, um, but I, I'm here at the conference, so I asked the chief, hey, go send our Marine Patrol out and take a look at it, see if the conditions have changed or if there's anything else that we need to be aware of. And so the, the chief's not uh, in, he's, he's out dealing with a personal issue. So one of his command staff shot me a note back and said, I'm sorry, uh, we don't have a Marine Patrol officer available until after Monday. And I had said, I'd like to have someone go out and look before the weekend. And, and so it was just like, uh, we can't do it because we don't have the resources. And so I sent a note back, copied the public works director, the fire chief who has a boat, the public works department who has a boat, and, and the uh, acting police chief and just said, you know, I know this is a team opportunity for all of us. The police department doesn't have a boat. Oh, I bet they love that optimism. Yeah, so, so, so I'm looking forward to you guys talking today and let me know how we're going to go out and look at that. And, and I would say within an hour, they emailed me back and said, we've got to cover the fire department's taking the police department out. I got a note today. They were out at 11 o'clock, and they said, we've documented existing conditions. There's no violations of code. We took pictures. We'll provide you a report when you get back in the office. But the department didn't have the resources. Their Marine Patrol officer legitimately was off. And they didn't have anyone else qualified to go out in the police boat. Um, but we had two other departments that had boats and the ability to take someone out. And so they figured it all out. I just couched it to them as a team opportunity. And, uh, and they took care of it. So I think that's what we're trying to do, especially in a small organization where you have limited resources. And so when I want to send the it. email that says, figure it out, that's probably not the right way to go. <laughs> Well, I might use a little bit different language. The first time. <laughs> You're a little nicer than that. The I first time or the second time, but not the third time. Well, to me, the third time is a phone call. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is, come on, you're a smart person. Work through this problem. Think it through. You can solve this problem. So, excellent. I really appreciate it. Thomas Harmer, uh, thanks for coming in. I really, uh, this has been fantastic. I, I love your four principles. And I love the fact that you created the BOAT just so you can always remember them. Yeah. But you have 31 others. I do. They'll yes. be on the thomasharmer.com website. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate right. it. Thank you. Folks, this is Steve Van Cor, and this has been another edition of the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Thanks for being with us.